is Johnny going to learn? That is our topic this week. We have governors across the United States who are talking about limiting what children may learn in school. As a result, it appears that they will withhold from them information about both the good and the bad of our challenges as a nation. One in particular, of course, is from the time of the Declaration of Independence. We promised equality, all men are equal before the law, and women. So what I thought we would do, and this is for the children, if you will, or the high school students, uh, I'm going to read samples of my textbook, The American Pageant, by Mr. Bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y, which I studied from in high school advanced placement history. And this is my theory. My theory is that for you adults who may listen to this, you'll find it interesting because you may have forgotten some of these things, or you may know it well, or you may have contrary views. But for your children, I would recommend that you make this available for them to hear. Because I think what we're going to have to do across this nation, if our politicians are not going to do what's necessary, is we're going to have to read history books and so forth so that they do have the information they need to be a public citizen. And to you, young men and women, if you do listen to this for the reasons I've said, you keep in mind that I did teach high school, but I also was a student for many years. Uh, it did feel at one point I might never leave school. I was spent so much time <laughs> studying. But I like studying, and that makes a big difference if you spend a lot of time doing it. I thought what we would do is start with several topics involving the South and the slavery controversy. I, I mention this because it is clear that in our nation, this is one of the issues front and center. And I'm not going to argue about the current politics. What I'm going to do is read to you from the 19th chapter at page 356 of my high school advanced placement history textbook. The preface to this chapter states by Ralph Waldo Emerson in 1841, if you put a, cha a chain around the neck of a slave, the other end fastens itself around your own. Now in a regular class we might sit and discuss that, but I'm not going to try to impose my views by having a discussion, just my observations about it. But what I'd like you to do is individually, or if you hear it with any other student or sibling, that you ask yourself, what does that mean? A chain around the neck of a slave and the other end of that fastens itself around your own. The first section of this chapter talks about cotton is king. When George Washington took the presidential oath, the economic wheels of the South were creaking badly. They were burdened with depressed prices, unmarketable products, overcropped land, and the dead weight of an unprofitable slave system. Many Southern statesmen, including Thomas Jefferson, were talking openly of freeing their Negroes. Be patient, because that's what they called them back at the time that this textbook was written. And confidently predicting that slavery would gradually die of economic anemia. But almost overnight, the invention of the cotton gin in 1793 changed the picture. The newly popularized short staple cotton, which brought a premium price, soon became the dominant southern crop, eclipsing tobacco, rice, and sugar. The baleful institution of slavery 
was reinvigorated with the Negro being chained to the gin and the planter to the Negro. The cotton kingdom rapidly developed into a huge agricultural factory, turning out avalanches of the fluffy fiber. The magnet of quick profits drew planters to the virgin bottomlands of the Gulf states. As long as the soil was still vigorous, the yield was bountiful, and the rewards were high. The planters, caught up in an economic spiral, bought more slaves and land to grow more cotton so as to buy more slaves and more land. Cotton came to be by far the largest and most vital American export. Not only was it valuable in establishing a balance between imports and exports, but it held foreign nations in partial bondage. Britain was then the leading industrial power. Her most important single manufacturer in the 1850s was cotton cloth, from which about one-fifth of her population directly or indirectly drew its livelihood. About 80% of this precious supply of fiber came from the white carpeted acres of the South. Southern statesmen were fully aware that England was tied to them by cotton threads, and this dependence gave them a heady sense of power. In their eyes, cotton was king. The gin was his throne, and the Negro bondsmen were his henchmen. If war should ever break out between North and South, Northern warships would presumably cut off the outflow of cotton. British factories would then close their gates. Starving mobs of the unemployed would force the London government to break the blockade and the South would triumph. In truth, cotton really did seem to be king. Now that's the first chapter of this section, and uh, the first section of this chapter. And what I want to underscore is a word you're not used to hearing, which is Negro. Instead of saying persons of color or black, in those days, that's what they said. And that was considered a polite way to refer to them. And I could change it, but I'm not going to change anything from the text of my high school textbook. The next section in this chapter is titled Cavaliers All. The South, before the Civil War, is perhaps not so much a democracy as an oligarchy or a government of the few, in this case dominated by a planter aristocracy. In 1850, only 1,733 families owned more than 100 slaves each, and this select group provided the cream of the political and social leadership of the section and nation. Here was the mid-julep south of the tall, columned, and white-painted plantation mansion, the Big House. The planter aristocrat enjoyed a lion's share of southern wealth. He was able to educate his children in the finest schools, often in the north or abroad. His money, as was true of men like John C. Calhoun and Jefferson Davis, gave him the leisure for study, reflection, and statecraft. He felt a keen sense of obligation to serve the public. It was no accident that Virginia and her southern sisters produced a higher proportion of front-rank statesmen from before 1860 than the dollar-grubbing North. But even in its best light, dominance by a favored aristocracy was basically undemocratic. It widened the gap between rich and poor. It hampered tax-supported public education, because the rich planter 
could and did send his children to private institutions. Yet the schools of the South, especially at the secondary level, were more numerous and efficient than is commonly supposed. The Southern gentry were high-strung, though generally soft-spoken, courteous, hospitable, and chivalrous. Jealous of their personal honor, they clung to the dueling long after it had died out in other sections. They carried on the somewhat spurious cavalier tradition of early Virginia and developed a martial spirit that is still reflected in high-quality Southern military academics. The favorite author of the Southerner was Sir Walter Scott, whose manners and castles graced by brave Ivanhoes and fair Rowenas roughly mirrored their own semi-feudal society. The Southern aristocrats, who on holidays would sometimes stage jousting tournaments, strove to perpetuate in the 19th century a type of medievalness that had died out in Europe, or was rapidly dying out. Mark Twain later accused Sir Walter Scott of having had a hand in starting the Civil War. The British novelist, Twain said, aroused the Southerners to fight for a decaying social structure, a, san a sham civilization. The next section is titled Slaves of the Slave System. And what you should do when you're reading this is you should compare what you know about today with what happened back in these days. They, they say, Santayana says, that a student of history, if you're not a student of history, you're doomed to uh, repeat history, to repeat its errors. Some say uh, history only rhymes, but the truth of the matter is there are things to learn from history. And here we're going to talk about the slaves of the slave system. The moonlight and magnolia tradition concealed much that was worrisome, distasteful, and sordid. The plantation economy was wasteful, largely because King Cotton and his money-hungry subjects despoiled the good earth. The urge for quick profits led to excessive cultivation or land butchery, which incidentally caused a heavy drainage of population to the west and northwest. The grim realities of soil exhaustion forced attention to scientific agriculture, and the pre-war South excelled in farm journals and agricultural societies. Edmund Ruffin of Virginia, who later fired the first shot of the Civil War at Fort Sumter, did notable pioneering work in the field of soil restoration, yet his best efforts were less than enough to cope with the problem. The economic structure of the South became increasingly monopolistic. As the land wore thin, many of the smaller farmers sold out their holdings to more prosperous neighbors. The big got bigger and the small smaller. When the Civil War finally broke, a large percentage of Southern farms had passed from the hands of the families that had originally cleared them. Another cancer in the bosom of the South was the wobbliness of the plantation system. The temptation to over-speculate in land and slaves caused many a planter, including Andrew Jackson in his later years, to plunge in beyond his depth. Bankruptcy was often lurking just around the corner. Although the Negro bondsman might in extreme cases be fed for as little as 10 cents a day, there was a good deal more to the story. The slaves represented a heavy investment of capital 
perhaps $1,500 each in the case of prime field hands, and they might run away. The entire slave quarter might be wiped out by disease or even by lightning, as happened in one instance to 20 Negroes. The dominance of King Cotton, likewise, led to a dangerous dependence on a one-crop economy, whose price level was at the mercy of world conditions. The whole hazardous system discouraged a healthy diversification of agriculture, and particularly of manufacturing, for which the South was almost ideally fitted. The plantations, while concentrating on growing cotton, were forced to import huge quantities of pork and grain from the states of the upper Mississippi Valley. The southern planters resented having the north grow fat at their expense. They were distressed by the heavy outward flow of commissions and interest that went to northern middlemen, bankers, agents, and shippers. All true sons of the south, especially by the 1850s, deplored the fact that when born, they were wrapped in Yankee-made swaddling clothes and that they spent the rest of their lives in servitude to Yankee manufacturing. When they died, they were laid in coffins held together with Yankee nails and were buried in graves dug with Yankee shovels. The South furnished the corpse and the hole in the ground. The Cotton Kingdom also repelled large-scale European immigration, which added so richly to the manpower and wealth of the North during the 1840s and 1850s. In 1860 alone, 4.4% of the Southern population was foreign-born, as compared with 18.7% for the North. German and Irish immigrants to the South were generally discouraged by the competition of slave labor by the high cost of fertile land and by European ignorance of cotton growing. The diverting of non-English immigrant streams to the North caused the pre-1860 South to become, except for the Negro, the most Anglo-Saxon part of the United States. Our next section is titled, The White Man's World. Only a handful of Southern aristocrats lived in Grecian pillared mansions. Below the 1,733 families in 1850 who owned 100 or more slaves were the less wealthy slave owners. They totaled in 1850 some 345,000 families, representing about 1,725,000 white persons. Over two-thirds of these families, 255,268 in all, old owned fewer than 10 slaves each. Beneath the slave owners of the social pyramid was the great body of non-slave owning whites, who by 1860 had swelled their numbers to 6,120,825. These rank-and-file citizens comprising about three-fourths of the free population of the South had no direct stake in slavery. They divided roughly into three groups. One, the energetic lowland whites, who were by far the most numerous. Two, the listless poor whites, who were generally disease-ridden. And three, the semi-isolated mountain whites, who were the most independent-minded. The hundreds of thousands of energetic lowland whites included such people as mechanics, lesser tradesmen, and above all, small cotton farmers. Though owning no slaves themselves, they were among the stoutest defenders of the slave system. 
the carrot on the stick ever dangling before their noses, was the hope of buying a Negro or two and of parlaying their holdings into riches, all in accord with the American dream. They also took fierce pride in their racial superiority, which would be watered down if the slaves were freed. Many of the less prosperous lowland whites were hardly better off economically than the Negro. Some, indeed, were not so well off, but they clung desperately to their one visible badge of presumed superiority. Conspicuous among the millions of non-slaveholders was a considerable sprinkling of poor whites who were despised by the Negroes as the Poe white trash. Known also as hillbillies, crackers, or clay cake eaters, they were often listless, pallid, chefless, and misshapen. Later investigations have revealed that many of them were not so much lazy as sickly, suffering from malnutrition and disease, including probably the enervating bookworm infection. The mountain whites of the South are not to be confused with the disease-cursed poor whites of the lowland cotton belt. They were more or less marooned in the valleys of the Appalachian Range, stretching all the way from western Virginia to northern Georgia and Alabama. The swirl of civilization had largely passed them by. They were a kind of living ancestry, for they retained Elizabethan folklore and speech forms that had long since died out in England. The mountain whites, like the bulk of their more energetic brethren elsewhere in the South, were mostly independent small crop farmers. They had little in common with the aristocracy of the broad cotton lands. Many of them, including the future president, Andrew Johnson of Tennessee, hated both the lordly planter and his gang of Negroes. They looked upon the impending strife between North and South as, quote, a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. The tough-fibered mountain whites constituted a vitally important peninsula of unionism jutting down into the southern sea. They ultimately played a significant role in crippling the Confederacy. Their attachment to the Union Party of Abraham Lincoln was such that for generations after the Civil War, the only concentrated Republican strength in the Solid South was to be found in the Southern Highland. The next section is about unchained slaves. Below the most wretched whites in the social scale of 1860 were 251,000 free Negroes, some of whom owned a slave or two themselves. They had usually been freed by kind masters or had purchased their freedom with earnings from labor after hours. They were a kind of third race, Their lot was unpleasant and their fettered freedom was precarious because they might be hijacked back into slavery by unscrupulous white dealers. Yet, as free men, they were walking examples of what might be achieved by emancipation and hence were frowned upon by defenders of the slave system. Free Negroes were also unpopular in the North, where several states forbade their entrance. In 1835, New Hampshire farmers used oxen to drag into a swamp a small schoolhouse designed for colored children. The northern freedmen were especially hated by the pick-and-shovel Irish immigrants who feared wage-lowering competition. Prejudice against the Negro was in fact frequently stronger in the north than in the south. 
The handsome and eloquent ex-slave Frederick Douglass, a self-educated orator and abolitionist of rare power, was subjected to numerous mobbings and beatings by northern rowdies. It was observed that Southerners, who were sometimes reared by colored nurses, liked the Negro as an individual, but despised him as a race. The Northerner, on the other hand, often liked him as a race, but despised him as an individual. Let's talk in the next section about the dark shadow of slavery. The black curse of Negro slavery could not be successfully whitewashed, however much Southerners might idealize the singing, dancing, and banjo strumming of the colored old folks at home. If bondage was such a blessing, why did its victims universally pine for freedom? Why did so many take to their heels as runaways? A Negro girl, when asked if her mother was dead, replied, Yes, Amasa, she is dead, but she's free. Slave auctions were brutal sights. The open selling of human flesh under the hammer, sometimes with four-legged cattle, was a revolting practice. Families were separated with distressing frequency, though usually not without good reason. Broken-hearted slaves were poor workers and potential runaways. Breeding slaves as cattle or bred was not encouraged, but tens of thousands of Negroes from the overpopulated slave states of the Old South, notably Virginia, were sold down the river to the merciless field gang labor of the lower Mississippi. Women who bore 13 or 14 babies were regarded as rattling good breeders, and some of these feckin' females were promised their freedom when they had produced 10. Floggings were common, for the whip was the substitute for the wage incentive system. As an abolitionist song of the 1850s lamented, Tonight the bondman, Lord, is bleeding in his chains, and loud the falling lash is heard on Carolina's plains. But savage beatings were normally not administered without some proven occupation, some provocation, because whipping made sullen labors and lash markers hurt the resale value. There are to be sure always some sadistic monsters in any population, but for financial as well as humane reasons, the planters didn't go out and beat to death a valuable field hand before breakfast. Slavery was undeniably degrading to the Negro. He was discouraged from developing self-discipline and initiative. He was deprived of the dignity and sense of responsibility that come from owning a home, caring for oneself, and finding labor of one's choice. He was normally denied an education, partly because reading brought ideas, and ideas brought discontent. Perhaps nine-tenths of the adult slaves at the beginning of the Civil War were totally illiterate. Nor does the terrible indictment end there. The slave system inevitably made for loose morals, sexual and otherwise. The marriage tie was held lightly and was sometimes solemnized simply by jumping over a broomstick. Slavery was also undemocratic because it was a denial of liberty, equality, and protection under law. It was likewise unchristian because it challenged the doctrine of universal brotherhood taught by Jesus. The black taint also left its mark on the whites. It fosters, fostered the brutality of the whip, the bloodhound, and the branding iron. 
It bolstered the dangerous theory of biological race superiority. It caused the masters to struggle along under the heavy weight of worldwide disapproval. It debased the moral standards of both whites and Negroes by providing intimate association under circumstances that involved a maximum of temptation. White blood inevitably became intermingled with black on a scandalous scale. Northern extremists charged with self-evident exaggeration that the South was one great brother and that the Southern master commonly had a harem of colored concubines around back. Such critics also made much of lured rumors, not altogether groundless, that beautiful and shapely girls of mixed blood were sold at New Orleans and elsewhere for fabulous prices, sometimes $5,000. The Southern whites who defended the black evil, so their critics charged, were defying the march of human progress. In doing so, they were forced to degrade themselves. As a distinguished Negro leader, Booker T. Washington, later observed, a white man cannot hold a black man in a ditch without getting down there with him. In the last section I'm going to read from this chapter is titled Reasonable Abolitionism. Abolitionism, as you can well imagine, is abolishing, getting rid of a practice, in this case slavery. The inhumanity of the peculiar institution gradually caused anti-slavery societies to sprout forth, both North and South. In 1826, there were 103 in the South, but only 40 in the North. The zeal of Northern Crusaders was intensified in the 1830s and 1840s, partly as a result of the general reform movement sweeping the country. Additional support was given the anti-slavery cause by the unchaining of slaves in the British Empire during the 1830s, including the nearby British West Indies. All shades of opinion existed in the North regarding Negro slavery. Many Northerners were surprisingly indifferent to the faraway Southern institution, or at any rate refused to take side. Another numerous group consisted of anti-slavery men like Abraham Lincoln, who as a practical matter didn't advocate abolishing the hateful institution, but who proposed extending it into the territories. Men of this stamp, commonly called Free Soilers, grew more numerous as the Civil War impended. Within the large anti-slavery map was a smaller but more radical grouping known as the Abolitionists. These reformers demanded slavery be abolished outright in the South, but most of them were moderate, supported a, supported a kind of gradualism, that is a gradual erasure of the black blot by action of the Southern legislatures. Serious economic and social maladjustments would thus be avoided. Some of the modern abolitionists also favored at least partial financial compensation to the owners. Now, I've only read you several segments from this chapter, and uh, I wanted to give you a taste of it. And I'm hoping if uh, you are high school students and you hear this, that it will prompt you to be curious one need not accept what someone writes as history without doing further research oneself to see if it holds up. There's an old expression about uh, what you can do with information. Uh, Geigo is called uh, garbage in, garbage out, meaning you're only as good as the information you start with to make a decision and to act upon it. I found over the years this book to be a reliable, a reliable summary of uh, very complicated uh, chapters 
in our history. In this case, we're talking about slavery. And there's more to be said about it, obviously. But the one thing that you should keep in mind is that freedom to speak doesn't mean very much if you can't get the information to speak about it reliable. You, you need to have the freedom to study, even as a young man or woman, so that you can have opinions form that favor you as a citizen. So if uh, any of your parents or adults introduce you to listen to this, I hope you take to heart that they had you listen to it because they hope that it would help form your mind at a time in our history right now when there are challenges about freedom of thought, freedom of speech, and access to information to build the character that will stay with you as you become an adult man or woman able to take on the reins of responsibility in government or private industry. So I want to thank you all for listening. This is unusual, I know. I hope you're not disappointed by it. I think anybody would find uh, this account, even from a high school textbook in history, interesting in and of itself, particularly since we're talking about something that even today is so important for us to consider. So uh, have a good week. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much. Myself.